Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Show och välkomna till Lilla Namos stad, en podcast med mig Lilla Namo och lite som namnet avslöjar så handlar podden om saker som har påverkan på våran stad. Saker som Lilla Namo helt enkelt tycker är viktiga. Jag är stadsplanerare på House of Sparks där vi jobbar med kraften av olika perspektiv. Så därför har jag helt enkelt valt att bjuda in olika perspektiv i form av grymma människor på ämnen som jag tycker är intressanta, relevanta och roliga. Jag är Lilla Namo och det här är min stad. Let's go! Hi everyone. Today's episode is in English because I'm meeting with Mr. Kieran Long, currently the curator at Arktis in Stockholm. Kieran is from a working class family in Southampton, but he moved to London in the 90s. He has a long career as a journalist and presenter, and it is an absolute honor to have him here on the show today as we speak about a lot of interesting and a lot of my favorite subjects such as gentrification, the concrete jungle, to his Syrian barber on Drottninggatan. Very much welcome, Mr. Kieran Long. Can you say something? I'm just going to check if it's... Hello, um, my name is Kieran Long. I'm here with Namo in this tiny room. <laughs> it is tiny. <laughs> and it's going to get warm in here as yeah. well. Okay, let's begin. Welcome, Kieran Long. Thank you. You were a bit difficult to Google. I was trying to find... Um, in Sweden, maybe. Yeah. In Sweden, yeah. I was trying to find things about you and who you are. Um, of course, I could find your articles. So my decision was to go on your Instagram and lurk around to see, like, can I find something about this guy here? So what I could pick up, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this is like my very non-scientific analyze about who you are. Um, so my first thing that I uh, took up was that you have a very ironic sense of humor, <laughs> uh, which you channel through different signs that you post. Um, I would say that you're a bit of a history geek. Mm-hmm. You like old things mm-hmm. uh, and you're nostalgic, but at the same time, very modern and curious about the future. Uh, and you tag yourself in a lot of pictures. <laughs> <laughs> Do I? I? Know, yes. <laughs> I don't know why. Uh, I tag myself. Yeah, you tag your, your own Instagram on um, when there's a picture of you. No, that's somebody else doing it. I promise oh, okay. you, I've never done okay. that. <laughs> I would never do that. Okay, so someone else's. Um, I'm not so hungry for social media attention. Because I was like, this guy has such a strong confidence. He's tagging himself. <laughs> so was the analyze, is it good well, or bad? Well, I think you're extremely generous. Uh, <laughs> I mean, like another way of saying kind of, you know, interested in old things, like you're a kind of aging person who's interested in the past <laughs> and not in the future. I, I, don't, I don't know if that's true either, but I think... Social media for me is a bit of an escape from the things you have to say and an opportunity to look at the city differently and look at things you see around the city that don't fit into any box, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things I appreciate about your work, Nama, too, is that, we're, and th- something I really strongly relate to, is the need to include everything in the conversation, you know? Mm. Like this morning I went to get a cup of coffee before coming here and sat in Espresso House down the street, you know, on her toilet, and there was a bird in the cafe. 
Oh. And it was so beautiful, you know. Everybody's rushing to work <laughs> and everybody's like trying to get a coffee. And there was actually a homeless guy sheltering in, in the coffee shop. And it's her toy is such an interesting place. Mm. And then this bird came and sat next to me. And I took a picture of it. And I just thought, this bird is part of this conversation somehow. Yeah. How do we, how do we yeah. include that experience of cities in this big conversation we're always trying to have mm. about how we redesign them, which sounds so professional. So the Instagram is a bit of like moments like that, signs, things you see, things that unintentionally reveal the personalities of our cities or our mm. countries maybe like who we really are you can mm. see it in there in in there somehow yeah that's nice i yeah i feel like it's an escape as well oh, um, absolutely and you can say things that you can't in real life but who is kieran long like <laughs> tell me a little bit so i grew up in uh, in a town called southampton on the south coast of the uk which is the kind of town that when you were my age in the 80s you're a kid in the 80s, you basically learn that you have to leave immediately if you're going to do anything <laughs> interesting. It's a city with an amazing history, terribly badly bombed in the war and, that, and never really recovered. And mm. so culturally, a bit of a desert. It had this wonderful... I remember going. To, I used to go to the City Art Gallery with my mum and we had this amazing collection in Southampton, this extraordinary collection. It had Eve Klein's, it had, you know, really extraordinary for a regional collection. And then one year the municipality decided, oh, we're short of money, we'll sell the collection. You know, mm. like, the, and, and for me, uh, they didn't in the end. But, but the, the point is that, you know, it's the kind of town that didn't value culture, didn't value this conversation. But I grew up loving books mainly. So I went to university, studied literature, and then just moved to London to be a writer. And that's mm. what I wanted to do. And I was for a writer. I was a journalist for a very long time. And broadcaster and so on but always in the field of architecture and design which yeah. was basically luck but complete coincidence I ended up in that field but I think literature pre- prepares you rather well for for this field somehow and we can get into that but but yeah so I was a journalist for a very long time and um, just enjoying London was an amazing place in the 90s and mm. 2000s it was growing extremely fast I mean of course gentrification was a part of that but the city was just kind of booming and it was became one of the central cities anywhere in the world for culture for the kind of conversations we mm. love to have um, so I was a big part of that and then then I had a baby <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, you know I met my wife and I had a baby and and um and ended up here, but you know those twenty-one years working in London were, you know, are the formative influence on on the way I see the mm. world. Um, and it's fun now to have been in Sweden for nearly three years and start to feel a bit less like a foreigner, a bit more at home, a bit more somehow like you're part of this conversation, but still with a sensibility that's from a very different place. Mm. So I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, it does. Um, it does. Do you feel more like a Londoner than? Someone from Southampton. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. London, I think London's such an amazing idea. One of one of the things I did for a few years when I was in London was I was the architecture critic for the Evening Standard, which is London's newspaper. Mm. Um, evening newspaper with a great history. Uh, it's not quite what it was now, but but you know we used to have a million readers every day. You know, in a city of ten million people, mm. and I used to always say when when you write for the Evening Standard you can write with a very high level of assumed knowledge because you know your readers know the city. Mm. If you're if you're from London, you really know London. Yeah. You don't know the same London. I don't know your London, you know, it's but but you know, your London might be, you know, knowing where the best pub is on every street corner, or it might be knowing the tube really well, or it might be just your neighbor each individual mm. villagey neighbourhood. 
but the London identity still brings us together. We can all still be Londoners, even if you're, you know, first generation from Kingston, Jamaica, and you live in Brixton, and I'm a now fairly middle-class white person living in East London. Mm. We're still, we can be Londoners together. <laughs> we might not be able to be British together. That might feel very uncomfortable. Yeah. And we might not, you know, that, for both of us. I mean, I'm mm. Irish, you know, but <laughs> but um, but, lump, but city identities are so strong and so flexible and so fantastically inclusive potentially in London really mm. through the period I was there mostly felt like that kind of place open inclusive mm. you know you could take part in it do you feel like um, there's the same sense of identity in Stockholm I think there's definitely I, I, I hope so I mean I, I tried to talk about this idea here in Stockholm and you know let's be Stockholmers let's think through what that means in its full breadth you know the whole of Stockholm mm. what what is the identity that somehow makes us all part of the same thing as different as we all are mm. I'm not sure it works quite in the same way uh, you know London is the kind of place where you can arrive from Turkey with your you know with your husband and your kid and in one generation you have a business on yeah. a high street you're integrated into a community your kids are at university mm. you know that's quite easy to do that doesn't seem quite to be the same no. there's not the same openness and you know this better than me Norma, but they're not quite the same openness in the society here um having said that stockholm and sweden is a much more fair and just place than the yeah. uk and london it's system systematically mm. so um so i think we have some work to do on the identity part yeah. here maybe I don't know, how do you feel about it? You must have... It's a very, like, it's an interesting contrast. On the one hand, it's more just. On the other hand, it's... I don't know why I get emotional every time I talk about these things, but because I used to live in London for... um, I was studying at Bartlett School of Planning, and I've been in London a lot since I was a kid because I have relatives there, and I feel at home there in a way that I can't in Stockholm Mm. because... I'm born here, I'm raised here, and a lot of people are like, you're Swedish, you're from... Some, but but I'm not, really. Because yeah, yeah. people look at me at a certain way, even if I'm a civil engineer, there's like a, a gap between my name and a Swedish name. There is still, like, when I walk into a room, usually in the field of planning and architecture, I'm one of very few, if not the only one, with black hair or mm. with a different name which makes me think every time I walk into that room that I'm different. Mm, mm. Um, when I'm in London or like another metropolitan city like New York, I don't think in those ways, which yeah, is absolutely. It's interesting because I'm from here and I feel like I'm from Stockholm. And um, a lot of the times I feel like I'm Swedish in my own way. Uh, and there's like, it's a big community. I'm not alone. Mm. We're a big community, but um, there's a lot of times I want to feel like I'm just blending in. I mean, a lot of people feel like that about London, I yeah. think. And I did too, as a son of uh, Irish immigrants, as a kind of relatively uneducated. I didn't go to a fancy school. I didn't have any of those connections. I, mm. I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm definitely from a working class family, although um, they brought me up to hide that well, mm. you know, that kind of thing. Um, but London lets you in. Mm. It lets you in in the most amazing way. But I would say, though, that like in my last years in London, I worked at the Victoria and Albert Museum, one of mm. the great museums of the world, a place of... You know, it's an extraordinary place in many, many ways, but it's also a place where the very top part of British society yeah. gives money, goes to dinners, comes to the openings, you know. And I suddenly realised, oh, OK, there is a ceiling here. There, you know, I didn't go to Cambridge. I didn't have, I don't have family connections. Mm. I'm never going to be the director of this place, no matter how good I get and how... And that might be, you know, I'm a very privileged kind of immigrant here in Stockholm, mm. 
But I, I must say, Stockholm society has been much more open in that way. It's much less hierarchical. You are able mm. to move more freely up and down in in Stockholm. I've probably met more politicians, for example, in Sweden than I met in my entire career in mm. London because that world is quite open here. They mm. walk around. You can call them up. And they take a meeting. Yeah. Um, not just with me, but I think that there is a genuine transparency to mm. Swedish society that is is better. You know, in my last years in 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 the UK, when I was really at that very high level of you know having dinners with hedge fund managers' wives, I'm afraid mm. to say, quite a lot of the time talking about money, talking about the elite of society and what they're interested in. Mm. I just thought this is not interesting anymore. This is it. This is I've reached my. <laughs> I, I've I found where the limit in London is. Yeah. And actually, so so I so I go backwards and forwards. I think. In terms of, like, I live now on Drottninggatan, just around the corner mm. from where we are now. Um, funny street because it's full of people who are not from Stockholm quite yeah, a lot of the time. Mm. Maybe that's why I feel at home there. Like it's always busy, relatively busy. Mm. Although when my wife and I arrived, we've lived in Östermalm first, we've just rented a place for a few months, and she used to say, "It's like the zombie apocalypse. Where mm. are all the people?" Because we'd come no, from like London, it's a sleeping town. Uh, yeah, and even in Drottninggatan, you can sometimes feel that. But yeah. but you know, I live around the corner from the best. Uh, uh, Bengali and Indian Delhi from an African hairdresser my barber is a Syrian guy on Drottning Garden there's a whole series of people mm. it's a diverse place mm. it's just that they haven't yet been given the opportunity to own the public realm around them yeah. um, and I think if I had a passion project for my time in Stockholm is to try to have that conversation what can we do for those people to give them more visibility to give them more ownership of the public realm mm. both in central Stockholm but in Stockholm in general yeah. and realise that they're well, I mean, we know they're part. We're all part of the same city, but we need to give a little bit more to them. And I think London's very good at that. Mm. Yeah, I agree. So, what makes a good city then? I mean, it's a big question. Mm. Every every city is good and bad in its own mm. way. Like the living in London, you know, because you lived there. Like, there's a kind of ironic survivor's humour that goes on. Like, it's so expensive and so difficult and <laughs> nothing works and it's too big and blah, 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 blah. But you are brought together with your friends because you're all suffering. You know, exactly. it's like it takes you an hour and a half to get to work. Happy yeah. <laughs> and we like that and we joke about it yeah. and it's fun. Um, but if that was the case in Stockholm, I don't think we'd be joking about it. We'd be like, mm. why can't they damn well fix mm. it? So everybody has their own sense of humour that gets us through being a citizen yeah. of whichever place. But I think, yeah, and so it's very hard to generalize. These these little cocktails are so so particular. Yeah. And you can spend your whole life and career studying just one city, which yeah. is what I thought I would do, actually. Yeah. I thought London's enough for one whole career, easy. And now I've ended up here and and thinking about another place, and not just Stockholm, but the whole of Sweden, yeah. of course. Um, and it's quite a different thing. But, I mean, what makes a good city? We, you know, I think we're going to get into this in, in more detail, but right now you would say that a good city... People like the authorities want to define a good city in terms of terms like social sustainability or something mm. like that. Like we should all, I don't know, I, I think it's a really problematic term. What does it mean? We should all just kind of get along better. Yeah. You know, we should have equality. We mm. should have, you know, it's all really vague. Like what's contained in that? Mm. Um, I think a good city is a place, I think it, there's something about being able to arrive and be yourself in a city that's powerful. Mm. That's what London has. New York had it till recently. Um, I think Chinese cities have it. You know, we don't see it so easily, but the, uh, the rural to urban migration in China has come along, has come side by side with an explosion in Southeast Asian and Asian popular culture, which is coming from people creating their identities mm. in these relatively open cities in urban situations where they can 
start a shop, start a brand, start a record label, perform something, do something in their spare time. Mm. I mean, I'm not trying to glamorize the life of a <laughs> rural to urban um, worker in in China, but urban culture gives you that opportunity mm. at its best. Um, Stockholm, you can feel, could be a bit more like that. Yeah. You know, could learn something like that. My this my barber, for instance, the guy, my hairdresser, who's this Syrian guy. He's been in Stockholm for 14 years, so he's like not a recent mm. um, arrival. Really smart guy. And he said, Stockholm's so boring. I said, what do you mean by that? <laughs> it's so boring. Like, all they want you to do in the evening is they want you to go to the cinema. I don't want to go to the cinema mm-hmm. and I don't drink. Like, mm-hmm. what, I want to go out on the street and I want to see people and yeah. in Damascus, you know. And so I felt like doing a project like, what could Stockholm learn from Damascus? Mm. Like, really a lot. But it, it feels totally counterintuitive that right now we could learn anything yeah, from a war-torn country. But God, we need a bit of Damascus in mm. Stockholm, you can feel. And he's right, you know. Yeah. So how do we allow his voice in to the debates you and I are privileged to be a part of, yeah. you know? Um, that's an interesting question. I think in there is what is a good city. In in that in that in the answer to that challenge is yeah. where we find what a good city is. And I feel also it's interesting, like in the context of Damascus or the Middle East, in a Swedish context, that's nothing we see as a like vibrant, nice city, except for those people that maybe travel a lot. So that would be very interesting to bring the voices that are not heard mm. in a way and it doesn't always have to be unprivileged voices mm. it also be like your barber your um we yeah we did a study about recent syrian uh, migration because we're trying to do a project in the museum about diversifying our own staff mm. because culture in sweden cultural institutions are extremely white and we're relatively relatively diverse in, at arcdes in terms of nationality but not in terms of ethnicity anyway the the um We did a study, and it turns out that there are more architects as a percentage of recent immigration from Syria than there are in the general population. So, mm. so there are, I, I can't remember the numbers, but like something like six percent or four percent of recent Syrian immigration are architects. Mm. That's more than there are in the general population. So, where are they all? Like, yeah. where, like you say, they're not un- underprivileged people. They're people who are who are refugees because of war, but they yeah. had careers. They're professional people. Exactly. So, we must allow those people in. Yeah. <laughs> So we did touch a little bit upon Victoria and Albert Museum. So how did you end up there and how did you then come to Arctis? I, I ended up at the Victoria and Albert Museum um, partly by luck and partly because museums are kind of changing. I mean, the V&A is one of the biggest museums in the world in terms of size, volume, number of objects and staff. Um, And, but when I I had just done the Venice Biennale, I'd worked on the Venice Biennale, the world's biggest architecture exhibition, with David Chipperfield, the British architect who was artistic director that year. We'd done this very very big curatorial project, and just very briefly, I could say oh, I'm kind of a curator, mm. and so and that job just came up, and I applied. And but it coincided with a time when I think museums were looking for a different kind of knowledge. They were saying, you know, we need to be able to connect things horizontally mm. rather than have all these experts who are extremely ex- expert, very deep and narrow knowledge needs to be sort of augmented with broad and shallow knowledge. Mm. <laughs> and I'm a broad and shallow yeah. person um, more than I am a deep and narrow person. And the reasons for that is that the way we use museums is changing. Like a place like the V&A, you know, over a thousand people work at the V&A. More people work at the V&A than work in all the national museums in Sweden put together. Oh, wow. um, it has four and a half million objects. It has, you know, it's it's a museum of world significance. Mm. It has now, what do we have, nearly four million visitors a year, um, which is probably as many as all the national museums in Stockholm put together. So it's so the scale is quite hard to get your head around. And when you're there, 
you realise it's kind of like a little city, this mm. place. Of course, it's lots of galleries with beautiful and valuable things in them, which we show to people in a very special way, and we research them. And But it's also, I used to, get, when I arrived there, I started to say, talk about other things that the museum did. So yeah. I said, well, look at this place. Yes, it's these beautiful galleries and these beautiful things, but it's also a public toilet, and it's also a cafe, and it's a shop, and it's a kind of a creche, and it's a school because they have 600 school children every day on organised wow. activities at the V&A. They, you know, it's a warehouse, it's a science lab, it's it, it has so many things in it that you could say is like it's a university, it's you know, um, definitely a library, it's a, you know all of those things. It's a public space. It's like a little bit of the city. So what would happen if we took that logic seriously and said, you know, what kind of space is this? How do, how, what are our, are our responsibilities, the people who own and yeah. run that space? So one of the first projects I did there was a project called All of This Belongs to You, which was a project, a curatorial project all through the galleries of the V&A, this gigantic building, where we just asked the question, what does it mean that all of these things and this place are yours, if you remember the public? I mean, these things are yours, but you can't take them home and you can't yeah. sell them. Like they're kind of ours, but but they're held for you, and we serve you. The taxpayer money pays me and pays the same as the same as they do at Arc does. And we started to try and think about that, so we commissioned a series of projects that involved inviting in, for instance, you know, for instance, we worked with a, an Italian church, a very long-standing Italian church mm. in Clerkenwell, in East Central London, and invited. They, they have a dance club. These old Italian people who mostly don't speak English. And we said, look, come and dance in the Renaissance Gallery of the V&A, which is full of objects oh, from wow. Venice and Florence. Mm. And they did that during the exhibition. And, of course, to go into the into the museum at that point to look at these Renaissance sculptures, but to see these elderly Italian mm. people dancing to, you know, Caruso, you know, was a very different experience of those objects and the public space of the museum. And we also did things related to protest, of course, and uh, it was a very vibrant and difficult time in London then. This is now six years ago. Um, when libraries were closing, you know, neoliberal economics was destroying the public realm and still is in in the UK. And so we would say, well, maybe now you're kind of more free in the museum mm. than you are on the street. And what does that mean? You, you have more rights in our walls than you do on Parliament Square now. Mm. You're not allowed to protest there in large groups for a long period of time. Maybe you can in the V&A. So how do we take that responsibility seriously you know, and so it was all those logics I was trying to work with at the V&A, and that was quite new for them. Um, we did a bunch of collecting projects where we brought in objects to the collection that were quite different and not valuable, actually. <laughs> Things you could buy down the street in, in department stores, but looked at them in a different way to do with how they were made, who made them, which countries they were made in, under what conditions, those kinds of questions. Yeah. And and. The thing I found is that museums are amazingly able to accept that. They're very old institutions that have been flexible for a very long time, and and I was really allowed to do a lot of these quite tricky things for the V&A. Mm. Um, I don't say I transformed it. We change you change you change an institution like that one percent every year, yeah. <laughs> um, but we did our one percent, and yeah. it was meaningful, you know. And now we're now coming to Sweden to take over Arktis. It's just an amazing opportunity because you know we have we're smaller, we can be faster, we can do more things. We're not so tied to hedge fund managers mm. and those kinds of people mm. um, and PR companies. We can be really independent, and I, th- I hope we're trying to take that opportunity. Mm. There is a current exhibition right now called Flying Panels, How Flying Panels Changed the World. Which you came to see. I came to see it. Thank you. I had a, I had a private, actually, uh, Lucky listening. You. Yeah, because <laughs> I was going to see it uh, to talk about it on uh, Pia Fira, the radio station. 
Uh, it was very interesting. And I, um, the first thing I felt when I came in was like, you know, when you step into a church and you feel like something is just uh, raining over you uh, because I love concrete. I <laughs> yeah. love it. Weirdly enough, I, I, I think it has to do with my childhood and mm. growing up where I grew up and all that. Um, but what is, how come flying panels became an Arctis exhibition and what is your view uh, on that exhibition? We're really proud of flying panels. It's it's in a way the first exhibition since I've been at the museum that began in the museum and we've taken it all the way through the process of research and of designing it and trying to tell that story. And there are a few things I think that are important about it. I mean, my view is, especially in Sweden, we see technology as something separate to culture. Like there's this thing that engineers do and then there's this thing that artists do yeah. and those are two different things. Mm. And what Flying Panels proves is that technology is just a kind of culture. It's just a story you tell yourself. Yes, it's to do with materials. Yes, it's to do with, you know, solving problems. And those problems are real and physics exists. I'm not, mm. you know, but actually technology is, is part of the story we tell ourselves as a, as a group of human beings. And what you see in the exhibition is, of course, an explanation of how these panel systems work and some of the architecture that came out of them. But you see the posters and the films and the toys and the drawings and the and the satire and the commentary. Yeah. You see all of that cultural world, that world of commentary around the simple, humble panel. Yeah. And you realize, wow, the panel is actually telling us a story about who we were in the 20th yeah. century. You know, and, and mainly a lot of what the exhibition focuses on is the communist world and the socialist world. Yeah. But also in Sweden, there's a, we did a big piece of research on, on the, Swede, the emergence of panelized construction in Sweden. And just one, I think, story which tells you this proves this this um, idea that technology and culture are not two different things. Technology is just part of culture. It's like, it is the end, what I think of as the end of the exhibition where we we have a little exhibit about the concrete Picassos that oh. are in our garden. We have three amazing concrete Picassos in the garden of the museum. Very odd things. People often ask about them and we've done the research and we know now that the person who cast those um, those pieces of concrete was a man called Alan Skarner. Mm. And Alan Skarner was one of the big innovators and was head of a big construction company here in, in Sweden in the 50s and 60s. Mm. He was one of the people responsible for building the Million Programme. Mm. But he also knew Picasso and he was making artworks for Picasso. <laughs> and think of that now. Think of a think of a construction company who would yeah. be able to do that now. I mean, it's quite hard to mm. imagine. But Alan Skarner was a very cultured person who was also a very technically accomplished mm. person and understood that culture and technology are not separate. I'm not saying everything he did was brilliant. I'm not saying everything... What I'm saying is that these things were somehow closer together in that yeah. time. Um, and I think that's what I hope the exhibition shows. Mm. You know, And it gives us a way, I hope, to reread and see again the buildings that we have in cities like Stockholm yeah. around, you know, with that in mind. Mm. So these are stories we tell ourselves. These are not mistakes in, in a kind of... Yeah. Or in a progression towards a better world. These are... This was a period in time where we believed these things mm. and, and that concrete was part of the future. Yeah, because I believe um, when I did visit the exhibition, I felt like any person who steps in here will understand that concrete is not equal to a stigmatized area because that's a lot of the times you don't see it. But when you do see it, it's like, oh, this is this is a no-go zone. This is not like a place we want to be. So I think the exhibition really brought that to light that it's an art form somehow i hope so and we use, there are two drawings in the in the bit the bit of the exhibition which is all about sweden of nor sherping mm. these two very beautiful drawings from our collection which are 
sort of drawings by an illustrator of, of um, two housing areas in North Shopping. And what you can see in those drawings, which were, of course, done at the time, mm. uh, you know, to show people what this place would be like, they were trying to create good streets. They mm. were trying to create human environments, places where people could live and socialise and relax and shop and do all the things the city needs to do. It was absolutely in their mind. It didn't always work out, yeah. you know, but it doesn't always work out in any period mm. of, of planning and architecture. Um, but, you know, there was, it wasn't like these architects were going around thinking, we're going to do this terrible architecture for poor people. Yeah. We're gonna, you know, and, and especially in Sweden. Sweden, in fact, was probably one of the best countries in the world yeah. in creating good environments. Not all of them are good, but, you know, you know. There's a lot of good places. There are a lot of good though. places, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And, and it won't, and when I go to them with a British, you know, point of view, and you've lived in London, you think these places are like heaven compared to the <laughs> suburbs of, of Southampton yeah. or some of the cities that I know mm. in the UK. Um, but we still need to inject into these places more public yeah. life and, and take seriously the public spaces that were created and not just mm. write them off. And I hope the museum, I hope the show does that. But I would say that the show also doesn't try to say we must love these buildings. It tries to stop before we say that. We say, look, here's, here's a way of looking at them that's different, mm. you know, that, that shows that there was a cultural viewpoint, that there was a shared sense of positivity and belief in these technologies yeah. for different reasons. The results, yeah, I mean, sometimes were bad and sometimes were good, but mm. same in the 19th century, same in the 18th century. Yeah. You know, um, architecture sometimes doesn't work out. Yeah, and I feel like instead of always only criticizing these um, projects in these places, also use it as something to learn from and move on. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Absolutely. And take something good from. Yeah. If, if we just say, like, that didn't work, we're not going to do it again, mm. then you're throwing away, what the exhibition shows, you're throwing away three decades of technical innovation, <sighs> of cultural engagement, of architectural creativity. You're just, why, why would you throw that away? Mm. That's that's not how architecture has ever worked. And, and, of course, architects, we both know, they are interested in those buildings and they're working with those the, those histories. The problem we have right now is more in the public conversation mm. about architecture, and especially in Stockholm, where where there are two camps developing, one of whom hates concrete and the other mm. loves concrete, and mm -hmm. that's that's never going to lead us to a productive conversation. No. Um, there is a term called uh, con the concrete jungle, and I looked it up in, in the Cambridge Dictionary to know, like, what's the definition of it? 
And it says, an ugly gray area of a city where people live in closely crowded apartment buildings and there is little space and no trees or grass. <laughs> uh, so this is the definition of... Um, well, I have I have another association with the concrete jungle through listening to music when I yeah. was younger, um, like hip hop from New York and right. all these places. Because the, we've been touching upon this a little bit. Concrete as a building element has... For many people, a negative association. Mm. Do you believe that, in quotation, good quality architecture is somehow associated or connected with class? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Of course, throughout the history of architecture, fine buildings have been made in the centers of cities for ceremonial purposes mm. or for rich people who can afford to build them. So, of course, you know, there's something about materials let's say before the 20th century, that corresponds directly to what you can afford. Like you can afford more gold, you put more gold mm. on. Um, go to Venice, you know. But, you know, of course, the modern period is not like that. Modern culture, let's say modern art, modern literature, as well as modern architecture, was an artistic movement about breaking down those kinds of hierarchies, about saying, well, what is a city made of? A city's made of neon, and it's made mm. of the steam that comes out of a manhole cover, and it's made of a fire hydrant, mm. and it's made of kids playing. You know, there's there's a sort of attempt to democratize and to take away those traditional hierarchies, which is which we have to say can only be a good thing, right? Yeah. Like, why should only rich people get palaces and poor people live in? I mean, in the 18th century, there were literally no housing built at all for poor mm. people in most cities. They had to live wherever they could find shelter. So the modern period was about breaking down those hierarchies, particularly in Sweden. It was a period of building for a welfare state that was meant and intended to treat people equally. And, mm. and you know, it's still one of the great social movements in the history of Europe, the, the Sweden, Sweden's achievements in that period. The architecture corresponds to that. And we made an exhibition at the museum a couple of years ago called Public Luxury. And that title, mm. for me, captured something of my experience of Sweden. If you go to Vellingby you see public luxury, you mm. see luxurious public realm made for everyone, you know, churches at the very highest level of architecture, mm. but in a suburb that was not for, not in any way for wealthy people, mm. it was made meant for a mixed group of, of people. So I do not associate that, but of course, you know, what has, what happened in Swedish suburbs and London suburbs and particularly in modernist areas is they did become ghettoized, partly through poor management and poor, you know, stigmatization of those areas. Mm. Um, and that we need to solve, and there, and most of that problematic is not architectural. It's to do with, you know, how you, where do immigrants live when they arrive? Mm. <laughs> you know, do you put them in the cheapest housing you can find, or do you find a way to distribute them in a city in a way that gives them, you know, the same opportunities mm. as someone like I do have or whatever? Um, I think you're, it's interesting you pick up on the, time, on the term concrete jungle. Mm. Like, now in these areas of sustainability, we all know how important the jungle is. Like, <laughs> don't, don't take away the jungle, <laughs> God's sake. Like, yeah. it's our... Like, you it's know, so, oxymoron. Yeah, it's like yeah. the concrete jungle is bad. That sounds great. Like, yeah. let's build more jungles. <laughs> yes. Like, you know, and, and in a way, of course, there's something obviously racialized about that term and something very problematic mm. that the Cambridge Dictionary didn't feel yeah. like it could go <laughs> in. Like, who lives in the jungle? Exactly. And how do we stigmatize those people? Um I actually think of the concrete jungle as a rather inspiring sounding term. We mm. could, if you were to give that as a brief to an architect, imagine kids could swing from yeah. concrete balcony to concrete balcony, yes. and we, you know, we could have a lot of fun there. Mm. Um, you know, so so I I don't have that connotation with that with that term. You can also see, of course, that there's art that has come out of those contexts, which mm. relates strongly to those contexts. 
It'd be interesting to talk to some of those hip hop artists now, though, and say, would you want to preserve Compton? Do you want to preserve mm, yeah. the east side of New York? Do you want? Do, do you think those things should stay as they are because they nurtured your creativity, mm. or is your creativity in spite of that context? And that, yeah. that's quite a difficult. I don't know. You would have a that's better a answer. That's a very interesting. That's an exhibition. Right yeah, yeah, there. yeah. Yeah, we could ask NWA, <laughs> yes. like, do you want these places to be Cormacked? <laughs> like, that would be an interesting should, question. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> What's the difference between London and Stockholm segregation? I, I mean, there's the, there are a lot of answers to that, but let me give yeah. you two examples. One is that we have social housing in London. Mm. I don't say that that's a solution. In a way, the Swedish system is more just. It just mm. doesn't work right now mm. in terms of housing. But what social housing means in London is that there are poor people everywhere. Like in every borough, even the richest, there are, there are housing reserved for people on lower incomes. Not enough and not good enough, but still it's there. So I worked at the Victoria and Albert Museum, which is opposite Harrods, you know, mm. in um, South Kensington. But three blocks away are big social housing blocks with long-term working-class communities there mm. and mixed communities. So London has that and Stockholm doesn't. In the central city, there are clearly not very many poor people living yeah. here anymore for all sorts of reasons we, we all know. So that's one thing, more mixed because of social housing. The other thing is, uh, but perhaps more interesting, is like the kind of social mobility that London allows that Stockholm seems to struggle with. Stockholm wants to solve the problem of social mobility through what can the state do for you type mm. solutions. Whereas London has the high street, like London's primary, primary sort of urban form is the high street, which is a street, as you know, like a shopping street with small shops facing mm. a street that normally has lots of transport on it. And then people live above those shops. And then behind that street will be housing areas. Mm. And everybody meets at the high street. Mm. Like that's the typical urban form of London. Stockholm doesn't really have high streets in mm. the same way. Swedish cities don't have them. But what's amazing about the high street is you have lots and lots of small retail spaces that are quite cheap and places to live very nearby them. And what that means is you end up with a road like I used to live on, like Bethnal Green Road, where something like 40% of the population is from Bangladesh, mm. first or second generation. They have an extremely thriving retail environment, which sells all the things that Bengali families need. Mm. Um, but it's on the street where everybody takes the number eight bus to go into the center of the city. Mm. It's on the street where the post office is, where the town hall is, where the pubs are, where working class white people drink. And, you know, there's a natural mix. And as I said, if you're a Turkish immigrant, you can start a kebab shop. The year you arrive, <laughs> your son or daughter can go to university, you know, and and then you're in. You're, mm. you're part of your, your parents are business owners. They have the same status as the post office, as the pub owner. As, as all of those other people they might not be earning a load of money it's not I'm not saying it's like heaven but they're part of a community mm. they're next door to the Bengali guys selling their you know selling spices who are next door to the probably the betting shop unfortunately mm. or the pawn broker um, but nonetheless you know a, a street like like um, Bethnal Green Road is what Kherholmen needs because yeah. when you when I go to Kherholmen which I love by the way mm. I think it's an amazing area all of that retail exists, but it's struggling really hard to, to find a space. It can't mm. expand. There are no, you know, there are shops within shops within shops in Kreholm and of people doing the things which in London are right on the high street. Mm. And and I think that that urban form is something we can learn from in Sweden. I'm not, so, you know, retail's different here. It's harder to be a small business. There's all sorts of good reasons why that isn't the case in mm. Stockholm. But in London, you can arrive, be a business owner, your kids can go to school and you're in. And in Stockholm, you're stuck in a suburb where you can't own a business there's no opportunities for you to do that mm. you're supposed to what fix TVs or be a cleaner like that's basically the yeah. invitation from the state um, so that's why I focus a bit on these guys 
who live near me on Drottning Garten, who run the the you know Pakistani deli, the African hairdresser. What more can we give those kinds of people? How can we make them more present mm. in the city? Because it's not us who are going to fix their lives; it's them. We just need to uh, need to yeah. like take away the barriers. Mm. So you know, Bossas Rets Vereniger. What could we do to say every Bossas Rets Vereniger must give a, a retail unit at the base of mm. its building to to a newly arrived business? You know, mm. why why couldn't we do that together? That would be fun. Yeah, like that would change the high street overnight in central mm. Stockholm. Even if those people can't afford to live in the city, they could, you know, have a place, have mm. a have their faces present on the on the street. So I think those things, social housing, the high street, are two things I see in London, which, I don't know, there's something that we could think about here. Mm. Because I do think there is a need for it as well. Like we can see in some uh, suburban areas, actually all over the city, how old like uh, laundry machine, lokal, whatever mm. you say, yeah, like, yeah. are now shops or like a hairdresser. or a, So I think the need is there. Absolutely. We just need to provide maybe the tools and I mean, so I agree with that New York is a city built by immigrants right yeah. and and the innovation and energy and desire for immigrants to build a life for their families mm. in a place they don't come from like unleash that energy I'm mm. not I'm not trying to be a sort of capitalist neoliberalist about it but clearly all people who are arriving here this is a fully functioning wealthy society mm. give them the chance to start start something yeah. you know and and, um, and they'll make the city better mm. on their own that's what I, I, I believe as you know and And instead, we sort of even Arctas. We're also involved in these invitations to kind of how do we think about social sustainability, you know? And and somehow the Swedish state seems to think of that as some sort of system that we powerful people mm. will create mm. that will help. Them. That's that's not how it's mm. going to go down. <laughs> you know? There's no trickle down. Uh, yeah, maybe or trickle uh, up. Trickle is what we up. Need. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what I'm I'm very interested in um, gentrification processes. So I want to talk a little bit about that uh, because I think it's somehow also interconnected with segregation. Uh, it's not separate from each other. Mm. What are the differences here, like in Sweden and and in Stockholm and London? I mean, this is where we've been talking a lot about the comparison yeah. and Stockholm would do well to look at London and avoid many, many yeah. things that have happened in London. This is where London starts to fall apart as mm. a as a proposition because the city today is not livable for young people for working class people for people on lower incomes you can't live there because of the insane mm. sort of property driven consumer driven boom in land values and in property prices and stockholm for in a really good way hasn't i mean i know stockholm can feel very unaffordable for most people mm. in the central city but it's not at the level of london and for for good reasons mm. especially in the rental sector um, i mean in the public rental sector I think gentrification is also one of those words that contains too many things. Yes. Like, what do we mean when we say gentrification? Do we mean, like, people being pushed out of the places where their families have always lived, mm. you know, because of property prices? That's mainly what people mean, I think. Or does it mean just, like, more nice cafes? Mm. Like, is you know, you, you have to say, like, London has been made better by, you know, more nice cafes. Like, London, when I moved there, even 25 years ago now, 24 years ago, it was, like much more dead on the street than it is mm. now it's hard to argue that london was a better city then than it is mm. now it may have ma it may have been easier for me as a young person on very low income to live there then but in every other way it was less attractive mm. you know so and and is that gentrification when people are just starting successful businesses and you know so it's hard it's hard mm. I, i mean 
It, and I would say, is it is it possible to argue that Stockholm is really gentrifying? It, it's for me like the problem in the central city in Stockholm is a very limited supply of housing that lots of people want, and that of course drives prices up. Mm. But it does, but it's not like a. It's not like a deliberate effort. Like nothing's being built here. Mm. Like that's the problem. Yeah. Like you could just increase the supply and pr- prices would theoretically mm. go down. Um, so, so you know, gentrification isn't quite the same. I don't know what you see in the suburbs, but like, is gentrification happening in Kjellholmen? Not really. I don't think. Mm. I mean, clearly, higher value housing is coming to Kjellholmen, mm. and people are trying to drive middle class people there. But that might be good for the social mix mm. of Kjellholmen. It might provide more consumers for the businesses that are there that can't. You know. Mm. So I think it's a complex picture, and I'm not an expert. In, you're more of an expert in this than than I am. What I try to look at is kind of what is the role of creativity in this? What's the role of architecture and design mm. in this? And I think the role, one place where we need to focus our energies is on the public realm, the public spaces, how they are shared and used, mm. how we make sure that despite social changes and despite people feeling maybe sometimes that the city is less theirs than it was, I don't know if that's, um, if that's what people feel, that, that we create spaces and ways of using them that allow people to mm. come together and see one another in good ways. And that's not really the focus of a lot of... Um, projects that you see say in places like Kjellholm and Vorbigord you know where there's a lot of building going on and a lot of middle class housing arriving and probably local people feeling like oh god is this for us mm. you know there should be a big project there to try to make I mean what one one role that architecture and design can play I would say is to is to invite people into a territory that they can share get to understand each other understand one another's priorities mm. I don't know if that's a good answer really but it's kind of what we're thinking about there's a lot of reasons that creates the play field for what gentrification is and maybe it's not always about the process but the result of it um, that maybe is the Mm. issue Mm. somehow Mm. but how can we um, because I believe segregation might somehow be a natural part of being a human or being a city or a town or a village and maybe that's something we have to accept somehow Yeah. yeah Um, but how can we um, milder the effects of it is more of like an I think that's, interesting... You make a really interesting, powerful point that mm. I think is... I can imagine you have said this in rooms where that is a very difficult thing for people to hear. Actually um, never said it out loud. Well, I think it's. Re- I think you should you should go forward with this thought yeah. because like this is something we need to think about. A lot of research in urban, in our field, says that more coherent societies are happier. Like mm. it, the more like and more alike you are with the person who lives next to you, the more co- cooperation there is, mm. the more giving to charity there is, the more volunteering there is. You know, more coherent yeah. <laughs> populations statistically are happier. Mm. But you know, London, for example, unbelievably diverse city, one of the most diverse cities in the world, is a great city. Mm. It might not be always happy, but it's a much greater <laughs> city than you know than I don't know a regional city in the US, which mm. is full of just white people which may be notion yeah so we have to balance what we're going for are we are we trying to make people happy or are we trying to create an urban mix that can be as dynamic and as meaningful mm. and as culturally productive and as economically productive as a london or a, or a stockholm yeah. um but i do agree that people do want to live together with people they trust and sometimes i don't think that's always to do with ethnicity and i think we can break down those barriers mm. but we can't take them away we can't pretend they don't exist mm. we can't pretend that communities don't want to know the people that they grew up with So yeah, the the question is what happens at those interfaces, and that's why I sort of say the public realm for me in Stockholm should mm. be the big focus. What are we doing 
to show to people that some a place like, say, Ostorg in Central City is not a problem to fix. Mm. It's the only real public space in the whole of Central Stockholm because it's the most diverse and shared public mm. space in the cent- Central Stockholm because homeless people can be there and immigrants can be there and shoppers can be there mm. and I walk throughout past it every day and the police are there, unfortunately. Mm. You know, but but it's actually an amazing. You know, and when Avicii dies, we all go there, and when the Trey Krona, when the when mm, good, yeah. we go there. It's a place of public festival. It's a place of of meaningful mix, mm. and every politician seems to think that that amazing place needs fixing. <laughs> you know, I know. And and for me, that's mad. <laughs> we need more places like yes. Sales Tour. <clears throat> of course, we don't want criminality. We want we need to mediate those effects that make things. Um, but as we said, you know, like before we started talking, that's also part of a city. Like absolutely. We can't remove that. No, you so. and I, we, we agree <laughs> about so many things. It's so great. Like I, I, had a, I had a professor, I had a professor. and But it's so rare to hear this and it's yeah. so great. You, that's why you're so valuable in this debate. But like I, my professor back in London used to say, how much crime do you need for a good city? <laughs> because every good city in the history of cities has had crime in it. Mm. Like Chicago in the 20s invented jazz and had organized crime yeah. what what do you want to do about that if you take one away you might take the other thing mm. away and you and it's going to be a balance so mm. in a way it's a radical and difficult question impossible question for a politician to answer how much crime do you want they say yeah. none yes and if you have none then you have no then a whole series of behaviors that you and i think are permissible but barely not quite legal mm. like taking drugs on the weekend if you're a clubber or or graffiti yeah. or being transgender or being gay in certain periods mm. in history and you know things that were you know we, we take away the opportunity for cities to drive social change yeah. if you say no crime I, I don't want people to be murdered in the streets that's not what I'm saying but you have to I, I t- couldn't agree more with you Nama you should make a whole program just about <laughs> how much crime needs there does Stockholm mm, need yeah. how much crime can we accept <laughs> You know. I do want to make an episode about crime. With the, I was trying to get Liv give a passion to come speak to me. <laughs> Great idea! Uh, oh God, that would be my I'm dream trying. podcast. Yes. Nama, you've got to make this happen. <laughs> I'm trying to. <laughs> but I, I had this conversation with with a miniketskaf whose name I should probably not mention. Mm. He said about Sayo's toy, and he said, oh, "He said, but it's good. When I see the police, I feel reassured." I said, "Yeah, because mm. you're a white Swedish mm. man who's a Mindikertschef." <laughs> no, like most, a lot of other people, when they see the police, including me, to be honest, mm. I was brought up to think, because son of an Irish immigrant, I was brought up to believe that the police are basically not on your side. Mm. They are English. They're the mm. Queen. You know, <laughs> yeah. you, you know, and and that's so. I and I'm a very privileged person. Mm. You know, but like, imagine how those homeless people feel, how the Roma yeah, people feel who are on social store, etc., etc. We know this, and he was like, "Oh." Do you think so? I was like, yeah, I really think that not everyone feels happy when the police are around. (laughs) Do you think that uh, we are, and we, when I say we, I mean Sweden, Stockholm, are we pioneering in planning and architecture and how we go ahead on social matters? Yeah, I mean, without a doubt. Mm. People still come from all over the world to come to Sweden and learn how are you doing this mm. how are you how have you got such an equal society you know it was great to see this year that the equality statistics show us going back in the right direction again after a few years of going in the wrong direction in Sweden that's amazing no other country no other developed country is able to keep a hand handle on general e- income inequality in the way that Sweden has mm. done um 
or almost no, none. So, so you have, to, and I'm always really careful with any critique that I bring to this situation. To say you're starting from a very high bar. Mm, yeah. You know, um, especially in social services and the opportunities people have to go to school to be, if you're a disabled person, if you're, you know, you have mm. amazing opportunities here that, that other countries don't provide. In my field, in in the field of architecture. I think something we're trying to do as a museum is definitely not be nostalgic about the 50s and 60s, but look back at that period and say there was a time when architectural creativity was right in the middle of that and was really driving some of that innovation and driving some of the ideas of what it meant to live alone as a woman, mm. what it meant to live without the burden of childcare, what it all of those amazing things that happened in feminism and in you know after the war here, architecture was doing that mm. you know and now it's much less likely to be involved in those kinds of conversations mm. for all sorts of good reasons i'm not blaming architects for this only but we've got to bring back that radicality mm. not it's different needs now different a different yeah. world but but i think architects and designers still have so much to bring but they haven't been asked these questions for a generation mm. now so we've got to wake all that up again yeah how do you think that will be possible how is it ever possible? It has to come from them. Yeah. They have to show that they have the desire and hunger to get involved in these questions and show that their creativity can apply to these questions. Mm. You know, it's not going to come from... Like, I have some colleagues and some people who we work with who say, we need to reform the system so architects are invited in to design more schools. Well, if they're bad at designing schools, then it's no good. You mm. can invite them in all you like, but they're yeah. not gonna, it's not going <laughs> to end up better. Mm. The, the professions, artistically, creatively, culturally, have to develop their positions on on these things we have great architects here. Mm. we have great designers here who know about these things but we need more the museum we're trying to be a platform for that you know mm. we're trying to make exhibitions where we speculate about the futures of places that architects right now are not in, even involved in mm. we did an exhibition at the museum about Hepsbron on in Gamla Stan you know one of the most important public spaces in mm. Sweden you could say and a total disaster and a mess and only for tourists and car parking and mm -hmm. terrible you know burger places and and ferries mm -hmm. and it's like the most important space in Sweden arguably mm -hmm. and so we had eight architects come in and just speculate freely in the in a national in us as a national museum in our spaces about what could that place be? What are the needs of a contemporary public space? And we had people speculating about a non-fossil fuels future there. We had people speculating about bringing education and back there in the heart of the city. We had a beautiful project from young architects, Nielsen Rahm, who, who designed a cemetery island in the middle of the, in just mm -hmm. opposite Gamla Stan, between Gamla Stan and Krebsholm, and, and said, you know, what would it, how would it change the way we felt about Stockholm if you went there to mourn, if you're, my mother or father was buried there if you mm. you know so lyrical impossible but beautiful ideas that hopefully make us think differently and those eight architects who are in that show are supremely talented and have the ability to think completely differently you know about some of these issues that we're mm. interested in i can't i'm not an architect mm. but we can provide that platform for them so what's new on uh, arctis now and in the near future so we've got two really exciting things this spring that we're buzzing about in the museum. One is a big exhibition about Kiruna, in mm. um, the city in the north of Sweden, which you, your listeners will, of course, know is the city that's moving, you mm. know, the city that's being demolished and rebuilt three kilometres to the east because of the mine. And that's an exhibition that we'll talk about, you know, the Sami history, the engineering history, mm. the various eras of amazing creativity that went into building Kiruna as it is today and the feelings people have now about that city being lost mm. I mean it's a it's being demolished right now we're sitting here and there are people demolishing buildings mm. great buildings in Kiruna right now 
But it's not about nostalgia. It's about like, what does it mean to do that? You know, mm. what does it mean when you take away those public spaces and try to rebuild them again? So Kirana opens in April. Really excited about that. Um, and it's really exciting. We're also doing that in partnership with Consumusiety Noor, so the institute, the new art gallery in Kiruna. So there'll be an exhibition there at the same time. So this is really us trying to bring conversations that are very remote from Stockholm sometimes mm. into the heart of, yeah. of the city and take seriously um, that part of the country. So that's going to be great. And then we've got an exhibition also opening in the spring, uh, which is completely different, about ASMR, the mm. amazing digital phenomenon of people watching weird YouTube videos of mm. people whispering like, and, and make it, you know, <laughs> maybe um, we should have uh, done that. We could have done, next time, episode, we, yeah. yeah, next conversation, we yes. can do it ASMR style. Um, but yeah, the strange field of creativity that involves making you feel a strange tingling down mm. your spine when you watch a certain type of YouTube video. Um, we'd love to be part of also defining new fields of design. Mm. New, you know, what are the new fields that are testing the boundaries of what's possible in design and creativity? And so, ASMR is going to be. A really weird fun, and wonderful, yeah. fun show. So it's going to be a great spring at Arctis, I hope. Do you have any uh, any of those things that you you feel like your body shivers? Me? Yeah. yeah, I do. I mean, the funny thing about ASMR, I think for a lot of people, it's something you've felt once or twice, but you didn't know what to call it. Yeah. So I have this thing when I listen to certain singers mm. who record their voices quiet, but very close to the microphone. I have this like, oh. and now I know what it is. But when, <laughs> but when I was a kid listening to Joni Mitchell, understand. I didn't know how to put a name mm. on that weird thing that I was feeling. And and um, ASMR is that name now, that, mm. you know. But um, we we made an animation for the for the um, exhibition, like just to put on Instagram and tell mm. people about the show. And it's a really strange repeating animation, and that also I can look at and you sort of think, mm. wow, what's happening? <laughs> you know. Oh, and I think there's something beautiful about it, like. You know, the idea that we all know that art does something to you physically. Mm. It doesn't just happen to your brain. It happens mm. to your senses. And ASMR is the proof. <laughs> you know? It so, is. Yeah, so I'm it's um, it's going to be fun to see see how many people freak out when they come to the show. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that, actually. Good. Before we uh, finish this amazing conversation, I'm going to do five quick questions on you. Okay. Um, so the first question is, If you would have been an architectural era or style, what would it be? National Romantic. Uh, what's your favorite place in London? Favorite place in London? That's a very difficult. My favorite place in London is is a pub called The Hare on Cambridge Heath Road by Bethnal Green, which has like sticky carpets and <laughs> old, old men slowly dying by the bar and a pool table <laughs> in the back and a cigarette machine. Big Ben or the Gherkin? Oh God, neither, but probably probably Big Ben. <laughs> um, do you love or hate bricks? <laughs> I love. Bri I'm from London. I oh, love yeah. bricks. I love bricks. Good. And uh, this maybe this is a bit connected back to your hairdresser. Is Stockholm as fun as London culturally? Ah, uh, that's a really unfair question. <laughs> I know. St London has 10 million people in it. You know, it's a lot more fun. But but Stockholm we can leave it has at that, plenty of fun. Because we know what, what, <laughs> what that means. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Kieran, for thank coming. Thank you, Mama. Uh, This is great. Yeah, it was amazing. Thank you very much for coming, Mr. Kieran Long. And thank you for listening today. This was one of the longest episodes because I could have continued this conversation forever and ever. But we'll do that over a cup of coffee. Thank you and goodbye. Hold up. What was that? 
Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.